Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. A diocese is divided up into parishes, but how are the boundaries of those parishes determined? Do we have to go to our neighborhood parish? Find out more about parish boundaries and whether they matter on this episode. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Thanks again for being here, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. How's your Lenten journey going? So far, so good. Yeah. Yeah. Every Lenten is different, you know, and especially like once having kids and stuff, like you don't have the freedom to kind of do some of the commitments, but yeah, it's been good. 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 The kids are getting more into it as they get older. And so like, yeah, they gave up sweets. Uh-huh. And so then they like get really bummed out anytime that there's <laughs> sweets at something that's like good. at school, they had ice cream and I couldn't have any. It's like, well, that's, that's, that's good. good. Teaches them self-denial. Yeah. 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 Do you ever teach them the stations of the cross or anything like that? So I think maybe one of the past episodes we talked about St. John's, Indiana. Yes. That has the, the life-size stations. Yeah. We went there and visited. It was raining and, uh, and it started pouring like around the 12th station. Well, that's appropriate. But that was good. And then we've been doing the Stations of the Cross at, at our church on Friday nights. Okay. Do the kids like it? I don't know if they like it, but I, I think the ones that we're doing, I, I think there's some really good reflections in there Yeah, uh, that, that hopefully they're kind of picking up a little bit. Yeah. Do they like talk about it at all or ask questions or anything like that? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have a thing from Catholic Sprouts that we do in the evenings. It's kind of like a an Advent calendar for Lent. Oh, okay. That each day there's some scripture and a reflection and a prayer, and then there's a sticker that they put on a, oh, a good. cross. Good. This is good for the listeners. If yeah. some parents are listening, gives them some ideas. Yeah. 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 How's your Lent going? It's going very fast. Yeah. And I find that, you know, since I have so many confirmations, confirmations are especially, you know, the sacrament during the Easter season, but being the only bishop with no help, I don't have enough time of my schedule with all of our parishes. So I have to begin doing confirmations in Lent, especially this year because Easter's so late. Yeah. So I've been doing confirmations now for a couple of weeks and I really enjoy them. I really do. But it does kind of, how would I say, it takes me a little bit away from the Lenten liturgy, yeah. you know, because I have all these confirmations. But, you know, what's most important is I'm here to serve the people, not myself. So. Yeah. <laughs> And I love doing the confirmations. But Lent overall is going well. And, you know, with Holy Week coming up soon, there's a lot of homilies to prepare. But I love, especially during these latter weeks of Lent, to kind of focus more on the passion of Jesus. And for me, that's very spiritually beneficial. And I think we'll talk about that more next week as well, if you're up for it. The topic for today is not particularly Lenten, but one that... (laughs) We said the more we talked about it, the more curious we got about the topic of parish boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I think it was Father Andrew Bedzinski talking about his parish boundaries and that he was responsible for the souls of everybody that lived in the boundaries, whether it be Catholics or non Catholics. If he wasn't doing something to reach out to them, then that was going to be something that he was going to be held accountable for mm. at judgment, which really impacted me. It was a really profound and a lot of responsibility. Is it, First of all, is that accurate that 
the parish priest is responsible for the souls in their parish boundaries? Yes, I think in a spiritual sense, for sure. And I love that idea Father Andrew has, and I, I kind of talk about it, is that the importance of of not only taking care of the sheep within the flock, the members of the church, but also to have that missionary spirit. Mm-hmm. And like the good shepherd, like Jesus spoke about, he has sheep that don't belong to this fold. You know, mm. that includes those who are outside the church. But yet we should see them also as subjects for our pastoral care. And the whole idea of being a missionary priest, even in one's own parish, yeah. to those who are unchurched or fallen away. As Father Andrew said, he thinks about that in relation to others in his parish boundaries who aren't Catholic. So I really do encourage that. Maybe we should back up a little bit. Whenever we talk about parish boundaries, what does that mean? Well, I think it helps to just kind of think of, well, what is a parish? And the church has a definition, and it's in the Code of Canon Law, Canon 515. And it says in that canon, a parish is a certain community of the Christian faithful, stably constituted in a particular church, whose pastoral care is entrusted to a pastor as its proper shepherd under the authority of the diocesan bishop. Now, of course, that's a legal definition, but I think it contains a lot that's important for us to know. First of all, notice it doesn't say anything about territory, by the way, but I'll get to that in a minute. Uh It's a community. So it's a stable community that is constituted in a particular church. Mm -hmm. The particular church is the diocese. Okay. Okay. The reason the code speaks of a particular church, there are also areas of the world where there aren't dioceses yet in mission territories. So it Hmm. might be an apostolic vicariate or something like that. So it's not yet a diocese. So the term particular church in canon law includes more than dioceses, although the great majority of the world, the church is constituted in these geographical areas called dioceses. In any event, so you have this community that's in a diocese in this case, and the pastoral care is entrusted to a priest as its proper pastor under the authority of the diocesan bishop. So the parish, therefore, is an an autonomous entity, and the bishop is the only one who can constitute a parish. And so the bishop who leads the diocese, the particular church, which is the diocese, appoints pastors and has authority over the pastor of every parish. And most often, a parish has its own church, a parish church. Sometimes a parish has more than one church. It Hmm. may have a couple churches or a church with some chapels. I mean, typically, in our diocese, there aren't too many parishes that have more than a parish church, but you could. There are some parishes in in the country, for example, where they may have three churches, Three parish churches because maybe three parishes merged and they kept the churches. Okay. There is something that I think is helpful in the teaching of the Second Vatican Council in the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. It says the following, But as it is impossible for the bishop always and everywhere to preside over the whole flock of his church, he must of necessity establish groupings of the faithful. And among these, parishes— set up locally under a pastor who takes the place of the bishop Hmm. are the most important for in some way they represent the visible church constituted throughout the world. Therefore, the liturgical life of the parish and its relation to the bishop 
must be fostered in the spirit and practice of the laity and clergy. Efforts must be made to encourage a sense of community within the parish, above all in the common celebration of the Sunday Mass. So really, the pastors are my co-workers, my collaborators, and under my authority, they are to take care of the souls that I entrust to them Mm -hmm. within their parish. And only the bishop can erect a parish or suppress a parish or alter a parish. And for example, if I want to establish a new parish or I want to close a parish or merge parishes, the only thing I'm required to do is I have to consult the presbyteral council. I don't have to have their consent, but I do have to listen to their advice. Okay. So it's a pretty important responsibility of bishops. What is the motive for for doing this to determine whether I should erect a new parish or suppress a parish or make some significant modification to a parish? It's really like what's best for the pastoral care? What's best for the salvation of souls? So if a parish is getting too large— and the population too large or something like that, where the people aren't being served as well as they should be, Mm -hmm. then that would be an indication of, yeah, it might be prudent and wise, good for the people that I establish a new parish. And sometimes a parish can be too small Mm -hmm. and therefore it's hard to be very active. And and that's why it's sometimes a bishop would decide to unite it with another parish and suppress one parish. So just give you a little bit of an idea of kind of the church's law and teaching about parishes. There are also communities that are called quasi-parishes. We don't have one in our diocese, but this is when a bishop entrusts a community to a priest, but it's not yet a parish community. It's usually on its way to becoming a parish. And I mention this because when I was a priest, I was entrusted with a quasi-parish group of Hispanics of the whole Harrisburg area. But we weren't at the point of, you know, having enough material means and that to become a parish. It was a quasi-parish for a time. But there are also mission churches sometimes where there might be another place within a parish that has a chapel or um, an oratory. That's not necessarily a quasi-parish. It could become one if if the bishop thinks that it will one day be a parish. Uh But oftentimes it's a place where maybe a parish is pretty large in territory, so they have another what they'll call worship site, a chapel or an oratory where people can gather. And we do have that in our diocese, by the way. We have a couple. We have St. Paul's Chapel, which is a community of the faithful up in the northeast corner of the diocese that's really part of the larger parish of St. Anthony's in Angola. Mm. But it's kind of its own little community. I mean, they have their own parish council, and I mean, that's unusual, and finance council, but Technically, though, they're part of St. Anthony Parish. Okay. And I know there are some people up there who would love to be a parish. Mm. We also have St. Mary of the Angels, an oratory that is on Big Long Lake, and that's part of St. Michael's Parish in Waterloo. But they really identify their community as St. Mary of the Angels. Uh So those are two examples. Now, 
you asked about uh, territory, and this is a really interesting thing. There are two kinds of parishes. There are territorial parishes, and there are personal parishes. A territorial parish is really the typical parish. Mm -hmm. The great majority of parishes, for example, in the United States and in our diocese are territorial parishes. I think it might be like 8% of parishes. I think I saw that statistic somewhere in the United States, which would be like 1,200 parishes are personal parishes. Okay. Generally, though, a parish is to be territorial. So it includes all the Christian faithful of a given territory. So parishes have boundaries, and we keep records of what the boundaries of the parish are. We've had to clean these up a little bit because there were some— I mean, these are documents that go back from when they were founded. Uh, and then you might have another parish founded, and there's some confusion. Well, what? Because there's some discrepancies. So there are a few that I've had to legislate, like, okay, these aren't accurate. One, they overlap each other here. So right. I have to kind of make a decision. So, and I've done that in a few cases. We were trying, Father Gertner is very good at that as Vicar General, trying to clean up some of the records. But the church says in its canon law that when it's expedient, personal parishes can be established when it's expedient, when it would be useful. And these are established, according to the church, uh, are determined by reason of the right, R-I-T-E, language or nationality of the Christian faithful of some territory or even for some other reason. Hmm. Okay, so when it's expedient— a bishop can establish a personal parish, and it gives the different reasons. One very obvious one, it mentions language. Yeah. Okay, so let's say a bishop could establish a personal parish, for example, for Spanish-speaking people. Mm -hmm. It's interesting in our diocese. be a good question. I have to check whether Our Lady of Guadalupe in Warsaw is a personal parish for all the Spanish-speaking of that area of the diocese, or if it has territory. Huh. I didn't establish it. Bishop Darcy did. But just talking with you now, Kyle, I'm trying to think. I should know that. Obviously, the people who go there are Spanish-speaking, the great majority, if not all. But that's a very common reason. Another, it says, by reason of right, R-I-T-E. Now, we're not talking about Eastern Catholic churches here, because I would have no authority as a Latin bishop to establish an Eastern Catholic parish. Uh -huh. It's talking about rights within the Latin church. Okay. Okay. So, or some other factor, it says. Now, one example, we do have two personal parishes that I established that celebrate mass and other sacraments in the traditional Latin rite, in the Latin language. Mm -hmm. Sacred Heart Parish in Fort Wayne and St. Stanislaus Parish in South Bend. They are personal parishes. They have no territory, mm -hmm. but they I established them for the people who are attracted and and, and attend the liturgy, uh, the traditional Latin liturgy. And there are other dioceses that have where bishops have established personal parishes for the traditional Latin rite. I think it's more common though to have them for other languages, like I mentioned, Spanish-speaking. For example, there are some areas where there are some Portuguese 
personal parishes where there's immigrants from Brazil or Portugal uh-huh. or the Azores. So very common in the United States a century ago or a century and a half ago were national parishes that were established. And some of them did not have parish boundaries. They were personal parishes. If you look in our diocese, for example, you know, some of these parishes are like, or churches are a block away from each other. Look at, we have, for example, St. Patrick's and St. Hedwig's in South Bend. Well, St. Hedwig's was established for the, the Polish immigrants. I don't know if it has territory now or if it was had territory from the beginning or if it was a personal parish. I would have to check. Mm-hmm. But it would be an example of what could be a personal parish. But there were a lot of national parishes in the 19th century in the United States, and they continued oftentimes into the 20th century. But you know, because of changes, some of those have been closed or some have become territorial parishes and maybe some still continue as personal parishes. Hmm. Another example would be a particular, you know, again, this is for when it's expedient for a particular community. And another example would be, let's say a university community. There are some dioceses where uh, the bishop will will create a university parish as a personal parish for those who attend that university. Mm-hmm. There can be a military parish for those who serve in the military. Let's say there's a big military base. The bishop could establish a military parish for those who are members of the armed services. Mm-hmm. So those are examples of personal parishes. If you have any questions. I have about a thousand questions. <laughs> Before we get to that, though, just a reminder, if you have questions for Bishop, you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 if you have a topic suggestion or just a question about the faith. We're going to continue to learn about parish boundaries and what happens when there's a new church in the diocese. I'm really curious, is there a map somewhere that you have all these boundaries laid out? Uh, We'll find out that and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives with products, services, and education. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it back to our members. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with Bishop and been talking about parishes, how they're formed, the difference between a territorial parish and a personal parish. Fascinating how all this works. Is there a map somewhere that you have this hanging up on your wall or something like that, that, that has the parish boundaries? You said Father Mark Gertner helps with. Yeah. What I've seen are like in our files on parishes, we'll have a map in the file of just that parish's geographical boundaries Uh with a map or even just 
in addition to the map saying, well, on the east side, this is the boundary. On the north side, this is the boundary, et cetera. Would the boundary be a road a street, usually? Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. But I also have seen, and I think it was Father Mark who did a map. I think we were looking at Fort Wayne. There were some questions about the boundaries of the cathedral parish and precious blood and all that. And uh-huh. So he had a blown up map of Fort Wayne with all the streets and everything and used a magic marker to show like a different color for each parish, what their boundaries were. And that was really helpful. I don't know where that is. Yeah. I mean, we probably should hang it up somewhere. We should, but to do, we'd have to have a huge map to do that with the whole diocese right. because, you know, you're getting into streets and that. So, you know, and, or we, I don't remember if I've ever seen, I haven't seen one of like South Bend. And then of course, in the rural areas, it's not as challenging. I mean, mm-hmm. you have usually larger geographic areas but when you have 20 parishes in a city like we do in fort wayne and south or 20 in south bend or whatever it is i mean it gets pretty detailed yeah say somebody moves into town and they're kind of in the middle of three different parishes how do they find out what territory they'd be in they could just ask the priest or maybe the parish secretary would know Mm -hmm. they would be able to tell them, well, you're in my parish or Uh, you're in this neighboring parish. Okay. And typically that's the parish one should belong to. One of the challenges nowadays, the church used to be pretty strict about this in years past. Like you just, you know, you go to the parish where you're in the territory. We find today that a lot of people don't pay attention to that. They just decide to go to the parish that they want to. Right. And then they'll register at a parish that's outside what is their territorial parish. Mm -hmm. And we're very flexible about that because nowadays to say, no, no, you have to, you belong to this parish. It just doesn't work. Yeah. What would you suggest somebody who is maybe kind of torn with, should I go to this parish that's across the street or this one that I, I like the priest better or I like the music better or something like that. And they can't make well, that decision. I think you can say, okay, I live in this territorial parish, but, you know, and you could belong there. Um, you registered there, et cetera. It doesn't mean you have to always go to mass there. Mm-hmm. To fulfill our Sunday obligation, we can do that in any Catholic church. Mm-hmm. So any parish. So the parish one belongs to isn't determined by where one goes to mass, really. Mm-hmm. So I would say typically you should support the parish where you go to mass and and register there. Typically, it's in where one lives, the territory. But as I said, we're not that strict about it. Now, sometimes it'll happen that, let's say, someone really doesn't maybe belong anywhere. They haven't registered anywhere. In those cases, they still are members of the parish where they live, hmm. where they have domicile. Mm-hmm. So let's say they decide that, oh, we want to have our child baptized or want to get married. You know, who's their proper pastor? Their proper pastor is the pastor of the territorial parish, unless they have officially joined another one. And then as far as the boundaries go, would they ever get shifted if a parish was was growing in size or maybe the the population was getting more or less dense? Would you ever kind of move like, okay, yeah. let's, let's extend this over three or four blocks or, or miles even. I could. And I think if I'm not mistaken, 
I think Bishop Darcy did that with the Cathedral Parish in Fort Wayne with the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. I don't think it originally had parish boundaries, or if it did, I know Bishop Darcy changed the boundaries or extended them or made them if they didn't have them before. So yeah, that is possible. Is there a place in the diocese that you would like to see another parish or you, you see there be a demand for another Well, church? there are a few areas where there's, there's pretty significant population growth. One area where there's a lot of growth is Huntertown, north of mm-hmm. Fort Wayne. And our largest parish in the diocese is St. Vincent's in Fort Wayne, although St. Pius is very close, yeah. very, very large. The question is, how big can a parish get? How much more is Huntertown going to grow? Mm-hmm. A few years ago, I did look at that because the diocese does have land in Huntertown. Okay. We did a uh, survey of the people of that area, and there were some who were in favor of a new parish, but not enough people to really make a go of it. But, you know, we might have to look at it again, look at that again, because the population keeps growing and growing. So, um, but in order to do that, I would want the support of the people, obviously. Right. I mean, I think the people up there a lot love going to St. Vincent's, so they they don't mind the drive. And if a parish is getting so big where it's so crowded, et cetera, then people might say, oh, we need another parish. Or they might say, Bishop, we would like another church in our parish. You know, they could ask or huh. say, could we have another church in Huntertown, but let us still be part of St. Vincent's Parish, like a mission church, like I was talking uh-huh. about before. That's another option. So it would have its own identity, its own name, but right. still be part, part of, of the parish. Because the church name, let's say, let's say there was a, a new church in Huntertown that wasn't a parish. You know, it could have a different saint's name for the church mm-hmm. because the church name, now this is odd, you might think it's strange because normally the name of the church is also the name of the parish, but that's not necessarily the case. I remember back in my home diocese when my predecessor as Bishop of Harrisburg merged a number of parishes and in one community, the town of Steelton right outside Harrisburg, there were five ethnic parishes, like national parishes Uh for each ethnic group. And one was territorial. The others were all personal parishes. Well, he decided to merge them into one. And the church that he decided to keep was the Croatian parish. It was the largest and et cetera. So it was St. Mary's Church. Uh But the name of the parish, the new parish, was Prince of Peace. So the church kept the name. And in fact— the bishop was not allowed to change the name of the church because it was already dedicated. It was already consecrated. So a bishop cannot change the name of the church once it's dedicated unless the Vatican gave him permission to do so. So in this case, when these kind of things were happening, there were bishops who were changing the names of churches, and they didn't know that they weren't supposed to. Yeah, And the Vatican had to kind of slap their hands. There was a letter to all the bishops of the United States telling us we couldn't change names of churches. (laughs) The land that the diocese owns in Huntertown, was that 
purchased with the idea of we might need a church in this area? I think so. I mean, it was purchased before I was here. I think it was under Bishop Darcy, I'm pretty sure. But it's quite a few acres. So I think because of the growth up there, it's prudent for me to not sell it, you know. Mm -hmm. There are times where the diocese might buy land when it's available for the purposes of a future parish. That's very wise. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then if it doesn't pan out or it appears that it's not going to pan out, then then the diocese would most likely sell it. Mm-hmm. Because there are some places, for example, that's too bad we don't have enough land because yeah. we just don't have enough space. Let's say where a parish needs a social hall mm-hmm. or wants to build a school or whatever, and there's not enough land to do so. Right. You know, or the parking lot, you need a bigger parking lot. So we have a number of places like that. I think of uh, St. John Bosco and Cherubusco, it, it really doesn't have much land. And th- it would be wonderful if they had more land mm-hmm. on the site of where the church is. So now if we're going to think about purchasing, I would I would always want to purchase a, at least like 25 acres hmm. because of future growth. It's better to have it right. for the future. Right. On the opposite end of the spectrum, and I don't want to scare any listeners, but do you see a potential for closing? So you call it suppressing, suppressing some some parishes or or combining? I've never had to. I mean, this is very unusual among American bishops. But all these years as a bishop, both in Pennsylvania and here, I've always tried to rather than close a parish or suppress a parish, always try to think of revitalizing it if possible. Mm. And in some situations, for example. There are some parishes that would have, by necessity, had to have been closed, except we found other ways to keep it open. For example, in a couple situations, I've assigned a bilingual priest and started Hispanic ministry, Mm. and that revitalized some of these poorer parishes that were in decline, especially in the inner cities. Mm -hmm. The other two would be St. Stanislaus in South Bend and Sacred Heart in Fort Wayne, they were declining in membership in their neighborhoods. I don't think those parishes could have stayed open Mm. except for the fact that I established them as personal parishes for the traditional Latin mass. But would in the future, maybe there wouldn't be a way to save a place. I just do all I can to save a place. If a parish continues to decrease in enrollment, it becomes less active. It becomes, they're struggling. Maybe the buildings need a lot of money and they don't have the money to pay for a new roof. Right. And they're struggling financially. You know, there may not be any other choice. Mm-hmm. When you're assigning a priest to a parish, how much are you taking into account the demographics of the territory and, and the kind of people there and the needs that they have? Well, definitely there are certain places where I'll need a bilingual priest, mm-hmm. for example. You know, so that limits the number of priests I would consider. How many of our priests speak Spanish? More and more, because I require it of our seminarians. All of them? Yes. Are, there are some Spanish? exceptions where if English isn't their first language to begin with, that could be difficult. But mm-hmm. I really strongly encourage, and most of the guys are doing well. A few of the men really struggle with foreign languages. Yeah. But my hope is that they do make the effort. And I think, you know, there's other things where not just the demographics, but the particular needs of a parish. Mm-hmm. You know, let's say a parish has a, a huge debt. 
Hmm. And I might want to assign a parish, a pastor who's kind of good on the money side of things that he can help bring the debt down. Or let's say a parish has a lot of children and has a a large school. I would want a pastor who is going to be really committed to Catholic education. So yes, I try to balance the needs of the parish community with the priests that I send there. Years ago, I had a Monsignor Schulte on my show, and he was talking about the formation of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton and how I believe it started at a gym and they were kind of built up this community. Is that part of the process? Like to see that there's a need for it and you have a community together and then start doing the fundraising and the planning for the building? Yeah, you kind of have to because it's kind of difficult. For example, and I wasn't here when St. Elizabeth Ann Seton was started, but I believe the territory had been part of St. Joseph Parish in mm-hmm. Fort Wayne. So the area of south where southwest where St. Elizabeth Ann Seton is, that was growing so much. It would have been very difficult to start the process to become a parish by the people just staying there at St. Joseph's. You had to kind of begin a community of people who were going to be the community at the new parish. So it's very common to find a place in the area where the new church, new parish is going to be built and to begin celebrating mass. And sometimes they'll do it, they'll rent space somewhere, Mm -hmm. maybe a, a public school or some hall and begin having their own liturgy and then start all the fundraising and doing all of that. So I think that's a really good way to start. And I think it's probably pretty common to do it that way. Yeah. Any idea what parishes have not the largest population, but the largest boundaries, uh, largest territory? Yeah, well, I'm sure it's, you know, some of our rural parishes. Uh I don't know which are the largest, but I mean, what comes to mind, for example, would be St. Anthony, Angola. Trying to think if Waterloo is in the same county. In our Dawson directory, we have a map, but that would probably be most of Steuben County. So... Some of these parishes have a lot of territory Mm -hmm. that are in our rural areas. So St. Anthony in Angola comes to mind. I would think if you go down to like Wabash, St. Bernard's, and St. Robert Bellarmine in North Manchester, they would cover that whole Wabash County. Uh You know, probably out in Marshall County, St. Michael Plymouth would probably have that whole county. Maybe Culver's part of that county. I'm not sure. I wish I had the map here, Kyle. I'm sorry. What what do you think would be the smallest? Smallest territory? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Maybe Sacred Heart Parish at Notre Dame. Okay. Because it's probably just the territory of campus. campus. Maybe it includes St. Mary's College and Holy Cross College. I'm not sure. Okay. I would think that would be a small one in area, even though they have a good number of parishioners. The cathedral has its own territory? It does. It's Both cathedrals, St. Okay. Immaculate Conception and St. Matthew's. Okay. I would guess St. Matthew's would have a larger territory than, you know, downtown Fort Wayne area of the cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. If you go south of St. Matthew's, you know, you get to St. Jude's Parish, kind of southwest And there was a parish that was suppressed by Bishop Darcy. I think it was called St. Mary's Parish that was in that area of, I think it might have been between St. Matt's and St. Jude's. Mm. I'm not exactly sure. 
where that parish was. But when that was suppressed, its territory was probably given to St. Jude's or maybe it was spread between St. Jude's and St. Matt's. I don't know. You're probably going to get some calls, people answering these questions. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been fascinating. I think, you know, something we don't think about very often. We just go to our parish that we go to and I would love to see a map with all the territories on it. Like you, we have states and counties and cities and you can see boundaries in all of these. You know, it'd be kind of fun yeah. to see the parishes too. But before we go, I want to make sure we thank some donors that we had a, a very great share and Keith and Cindy Turner are the sponsors of this show. So thank you to Keith and Cindy Turner for your support. And before we go, Bishop, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.